Live, welcome everybody to the one percent and health. This is our first podcast. Uh, an episode we've got Nash Morales and Clarissa Thomas. We're going to introduce ourselves, um, go around and introduce ourselves. This podcast is in, in the future going to be about uh, the one percent and health conditions and how we deal with our health conditions. We each individually have uh, some conditions we'll get into later in the episodes, and we're going to talk about how we thrive in our careers, our community, with our families, and uh, get into that. But before we get into all that, uh, we're going to do some introductions here. And then today we're going to be focus focusing on Nash Morales, who just arrived from Montana in a Toyota uh, Sentra or, or some smaller Toyota with his art pieces in the back of the trunk. And I'm excited to uh, talk about his story and get to know him. Uh, you guys will really enjoy it. But before we do that, um, I'm Sabe Anderson, and uh, I work in healthcare. I'm an executive in healthcare. I own a few companies. I've been uh, in some executive positions in healthcare companies, some telemedicine companies, and digital health companies. I'm a uh, recording artist. You can find my music on uh, Spotify and all the uh, outlets out there under Sabe Anderson. Um, releasing a book here soon on uh, my mom's story, the powerful women in my life and how that helped me uh, get my condition in check. So that's going to be coming soon. Uh, we all do a lot of things. Uh, we're going to get into, into that as we, as you guys get to know us on these podcasts. Um, so that's me. We'll get into Clarissa's background and what she's up to this year. And uh, her fascinating story will we'll come out in, in a few episodes uh, after Nash's. But Clarissa, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, I can. So I am Clarissa Thomas and the current Mrs. Utah County, um, running for Mrs. Utah in a couple of months. And I'm actually a behavioral health coach who coaches women on learning to listen and know their bodies and how the messages that our bodies give us so that we need to honor them and how to act on them. So that's what I do. I coach women worldwide, actually, uh, virtually. And then I'm also a group fitness instructor. I teach a format called work dance fitness that's hip hop, which is really great to get uh, adults back into dancing and loving how their bodies move. And then I'm also a mom of three girls. We call them the glitter force and we go about doing good. I have a 14, 11 and an eight year old. And my husband and I are entrepreneurs. We own six businesses between the two of us. And uh, we have an awesome little cockapoo named Frenchie. Awesome. And what are you getting <laughs> into this, this, this year? What, what's your goals? Just so, so yeah. So my goal, which, which is kind of what I said, was I'm running for Mrs. Utah, and I really hope to be able to secure that crown. And if not, my work will go on in creating online courses and uh, educating women. And I'm also taking my very first trip to Montreal, Canada this summer. Awesome. Very cool. And you made me look bad because I didn't introduce my family and, and tell everybody <laughs> I'm a um, grandfather. I'm a recent grandfather. So Thank you for bringing up That's your family awesome. and kids. And awesome. All right, Mr. Nash. Um, before we get into your story, um, talk about kind of uh, it, what's fascinating. Nash and I have been talking for the last couple of days. Nash showed up on Thursday night into uh, Utah, came down from uh, eastern Montana. Yeah. Eastern, eastern Montana. Yeah. 
and uh, two uh, two uh, two missionaries that served with in the Church of Jesus Christ Latter Day Saints went up and picked him up and his artwork, dropped him off in my house, and uh, we are uh, starting a business in behavioral health and uh, in addiction recovery, and then getting his his art out to the world, which is absolutely fascinating. So we'll be talking about that today, his backstory, um, his upbringing, some of the things that occurred to him in his life, and then also getting into his art. But recently, what have you been up to? Um, talk a little bit about that, and then we'll start diving into the to your story. Okay, well, first of all, <clears throat> I'm not like either one of these two. I come from a whole <laughs> different world. Um, I come from a community that is on the reservation, it's a nice community, but it's pretty rough. You know, the people are great, but it has its problems. You know, I come from, from the world of double wide trailer houses and res dogs, you know. And uh, as far as my background, geez, I had to think about it. I've done hospitality. Um, I've done bartending. I was in the coal mining industry, the oil business. I worked in a funeral home. If you pick it, I probably did it someplace along the line, you know, and I just have an interesting, I think it's interesting, my life. Yeah. So yeah. I'm here to kind of share and fire away, ask whatever you want, and I'll give it to you, awesome. whether you like it or not. So <laughs> so putting, I had an idea to put this podcast together, and I wanted to go out and find people um, that uh, have health conditions uh, who are thriving. And like Chris, Clarissa said, she's running uh, six companies with her husband and doing all things she's doing, and Nash is excelling in his industry and in his in artistry and um and we all have suffered uh from either health conditions or addiction uh before we get into that though i do want to do a disclaimer that we are not doctors um we are not healthcare professionals um you know if 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 we get into opinions and ideas and and uh you know start talking about health conditions uh, it's from having it and being a patient and being a peer so these are our opinions these are our experiences in life and uh you know for for seeking uh the appropriate or correct diagnosis of of what you know anybody's listening to may have you know please reach out to a professional uh, we are not the professionals we are patients and peers with these experiences so and we've learned uh, I'll be talking about bipolar, and Clarissa will be talking about PMDD, and Nash will be talking about addiction, and these are our life stories. So take take uh, what it's worth um, from us, and we have little tips and tricks and how we deal with our conditions. And again, the first few podcasts will be about our lives and introducing you to who we are uh, before we get into uh, tips and tricks and how we thrive and how we live with our conditions every every day. So. Yeah. Am I leaving anything out, Clarissa, on disclaimers? No, I thought that was good. I thought that okay. was good. Well done. All right. Again, we're new. We are not. Clarissa's done some podcasting. <laughs> Nash has maybe done one. I have never done one. So if I offend, yeah. if I if I uh, <laughs> am goofy and stutter, I apologize. But we we're very passionate about what we're doing and why we do it. Um, our attentions are are good, and we hope uh, that those who are listening uh, appreciate that. All right, Nash. So, where were you born? Parents, uh, siblings. Let's get into that first. Okay. So, I, was, I come from eastern Montana. I come from the smallest, least populated county in the state. So, it's got 600 people. That's where I was born. 
There were 600 people in the entire county, 300 in the outlying areas, and then another 300 in the community itself. It was very tight knit. You know, if there was a stranger that came into town, stranger danger, everybody knew it. You know, who, who are they? Because you knew if somebody belonged or you didn't. It was the world of nobody locked their cars. Nobody, nobody worried about people breaking into anybody's house. It was just, it was Mayberry in Eastern Montana, which back in the day in the 1970s and the eighties, that's how it was. If you wanted to borrow a vehicle, you just went and grabbed it. You know, the keys were in it, bring it back, throw some gas in it. It was good. There's no problem. That's how life was back then. It was very quiet. It was very calm. Uh, I mean, I came from an area where there was more coyotes, um, horses, barbed wire trees in the middle of nowhere. You know, some people call it open and empty. Hell, I call it home because that's what I was used to. And how big was the, the reservation that uh, that you were discussing last night with me? And kind of describe. So the reservation um, itself is 2.4 million acres. So it starts at borders like Yellowstone County, Bighorn County, Rosebud County, all the way to the Wyoming border. So, yeah, it's okay. huge. Yeah. Tell, us, tell us a little bit about um, your ethnicity and uh, your parents and. Uh, so my parents are, my parents were Mexican natives. Um, my great, great grandparents, they migrated from Mexico and they came up just for a better life, but they came up like, hell, I think they came up before this was even a country, you know, but a lot of them came up just like other migrant workers. They came looking for work, whether it be working in the sugar beet fields, um, picking produce in Washington, working in the canneries back in the day. It's just, it was their life they had. They would start in Texas and then migrate their way up to Montana, Minnesota, Washington, California, and, and work their way down. Yeah. But my mom met my dad and she never left. And lo and behold, here we became, you know, Eastern awesome. Montana came home for us. 600, 600 people in the community. Yeah. See, I don't in even the, speak Spanish county. either. So my, <laughs> my Spanish is like taco John menu board. You know, <laughs> I went to Mexico and they're like, I'm like, do you want a dollar? What do you want? I had yeah. no idea what they're saying. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, um, one was well, the uh, Clarus, we had to uh, explain what Uber and DoorDash was. Um, we don't have yesterday. Uber. Yeah, we don't have any of that. We don't have DoorDash. Are you kidding me? We have one grocery store where I live. You know How about restaurants. What does what does the area look like as far as restaurants and? Uh, there's a Pizza Hut, Taco John's, Hardee's. The newest, greatest thing is probably the truck stop. In their new casino, they yeah. tore down our Chinese restaurant because even the Chinese people left. They're like, we're getting the hell out of here. So they left and yeah, tore down the whole restaurant. And if you want a casino, we got plenty of them, you know, <laughs> yep. bars. So yeah, uh, our most lucrative business is the funeral home. So yeah. <laughs> oh, My Go biggest question it. would be Amazon Prime. Oh yeah. Do we have that? Uh-huh. Oh yeah. I got internet, okay. so I'm not that stone age. Yeah. Then, we, so. then we, can, we, can, we could live there. We could do it. Yeah. Well, I don't know if you could because you still got to drive 55 miles to a Costco. You know, <laughs> that's a long ways. Yeah. When you're paying 85 bucks for a package of meat, you know, yeah. and eight, nine dollars for a gallon of milk. Yeah. It, it's a tough spot. But don't get me wrong. There are a lot of nice people there. There are a lot of good people who are family oriented, but we have our problems just like anybody yeah. else. So there yeah, you go. I, during COVID, uh, my family relied on DoorDash. So I can't imagine. You would have starved in no, my area. I, I didn't want to go to the restaurants with a mask on and 
deal with that. So we just door dashed and, but you've never heard of door dash before. No. So yeah, no, we have commodity food. So you can get commods, commodity, cheese, milk, everything the government gives you. So, yeah. Awesome. All right. So we, we have, uh, we have some of the background and, um, as you, uh, you they're unfortunately getting into uh, Nash's uh, past and upbringing. Um, some tragedy occurred uh, early on in his life. So, you know, before we even get into high school and and, and discuss the upbringing there, um, there was quite a quite a bit of tragedy that occurred. And and not to jump, you know, into the darkness of this podcast too quick, but um, you know, Nash has has suffered some abuse in his life, and it occurred at an early age. So getting in, in before into the teens and into the twenties and the kind of what occurred in his life. Um, you ready to talk about this? Sure. Let's go. Okay. So Nash, Nash, just to give a little backstory, Nash is uh, an amazing artist and you can check out his art on whynasio.com. It comes from uh, an amazing place. And as we get in, his art comes from an amazing, an amazing place. And uh, we've, uh, how we met, was uh, my son served a mission for the Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints in Montana, and Nash uh, takes has taken care of the missionaries in the, his entire area throughout Montana, and and I've watched him through Facebook on my son's um, Facebook and how Nash would feed him, take care of him, check in with him, keep him uh, grinding out their uh, daily duties, and so I, I from a distance saw how much uh, I almost called you Wynasio. <laughs> how much Nash cared for the community, and we'll get into that. Um, he, he's, uh, we'll talk about a conversion story to Christianity later on, but um, the art, the art is amazing. It comes from a, from a place that I really appreciate being a recording artist and music, and I've used a few of his uh, art pieces on my um, album covers. Um, and, uh, you know, diving into what occurred in his childhood until now, um, you know, I just wanted to give a little context of, before we jump into that of where the art comes from, who you've become, and how you've overcome abuse and addiction and the amazing stories we're going to get into. So I just want to give a little context before we jump into that. So okay, um, I don't know how to start out. Maybe I you do. Just, we'll okay, be good. Ask. All right. Okay, Nash, how... You seem to have a very positive demeanor. Did you have that as a child? No, no, absolutely not. No, I can't say that I, I wasn't negative all the time, but when events happened to me and abuse happened to me, shit, ain't nobody happy. You know, it, it starts tearing at the fiber of your soul. You don't know who you are, you know, cause I was developing at a young age and the abuse started happening by people of religion, two of them. And it started at the age of eight. I grew up in the era when children were seen and not heard. And because I was born in 1971, and once again, back in those days, if people, adults were talking, you didn't say anything. You were quiet. You went outside and played. You know, that's just how life was. And once again... I grew up in a community in a world that every adult had authority over you because they were an adult, period. And people of religious hierarchy absolutely had authority over you. They were, quote unquote, people of God, you know. And so that's how it started. You know, once again, 
um, it went from a basic grooming process to a full on abuse. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, those are adults who are supposed to trust. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. These were adults that, you know, on the way over here, I'm sitting in the truck with Sabe. These are adults that would come and they would eat at my mom and dad's house. And so you're sitting there with these people who had abused you and they're literally drinking a beer with my dad, sitting on the couch, chuckling. And I'm just thinking, you don't even know what kind of monsters these people are. But once again, I never said anything and I never, you couldn't say anything. And the threat always was to me that if I did say anything, that my parents would be killed, uh, God would take them away. I mean, it got really dark, really ugly, really freaking quick. There was just like, it went from zero to a million like that. At eight, at eight years old. Yeah. Hmm. You know, I mean. How did you it, cope with that? What honestly, were your coping techniques? Uh, a lot of my coping techniques were just, uh, I lived out in the middle of nowhere. So I learned to go out and just get lost in the wilderness, hmm. you know. I was born in the country, so I would take my two dogs and just my mom would be like, which way are you going? I'm going that way. Okay, come back before lunch or dinner. She'd pack me a sandwich, and I would just go into the wilderness. Not so much the wilderness, but we lived down by the river, the Yellowstone River, and there was just, you know, there's always cornfields. There was willows and creeks, and I could go and escape into my old wilderness. You know, when I was... When this was happening, I wanted to be a Viking because I wanted to get away from all of this. I wanted to go explore. I wanted to run away. So I would go out into this island and take my dogs and I would just create little forts with twine and a knife and I would go fight monsters. And in real life, I was fighting monsters. You know, that's what it was. But this was my way of coping. You know, I... And don't get me wrong, the community I lived in and grew up in, amazing people. I mean, a lot of them are elderly now and they're dying. And I remember them being young, you know. It's a, it's a close-knit society. But it was so close that it was one of those things I thought it could never happen there, you know. Mm-hmm. Living in the bubble. Nobody does this in the goldfish bowl. Yeah, they do. Believe me. So, yeah. I would just, I use my imagination to escape, you know, that's yeah. what saved this, me. This occurred from age eight to 12, right? Yeah. Ages eight to 12. Yeah. Which is a long time. Yeah. Sometimes the abuse was a, a weekly thing. Sometimes it was twice a week. Sometimes it was one. Sometimes it was two, you know, and it just didn't happen. I mean, it happened frequently in the, in the church, literally behind the altar, you know, there's a, a room, a pass-through room in the back. And it was and it was a mind game. Now that I think about it, you know, I'm I'm 51 years old. I'm not eight years old no more. You know, I, I've I've progressed in my life. But back then it was it was absolutely a mind game. Because you know, I was being told that I was an animal and this is what happens. You were put here to be used by people of higher authority, that you were just you were a piece of property. That's what it came down to. You were God's property, and he could do whatever he wanted with you. And since you were God's two men, full autonomy. And that's what happened, you know? And it wasn't uh, just the I, abuse. I, it was the 
it was the sadisticness of it, you know. I mean, they would they would cut me. Um, they would uh, share a little bit of that. You told me that last night, and that's triggered me. You, you know, it triggered me, and from my own experience, but that you have marks in your legs. Sure. You know, there are sometimes that people. When I talk about abuse, I get it. I have lived it. I've been there. I've done that. You know, one of the reasons we're doing this podcast for me is that I don't want anybody to I don't want anybody to suffer in silence. I don't. I know the hell that it is. You know what? If you're being abused, if you're being neglected, say something. Yeah. People out there will absolutely love you and help you. I mean, I knew people. When all this was going on, you know, once again, and I'll come back to that, say, but we don't need to come back to it. We can move no, on. No, I mean, I'll, we're talking about it. So yeah. here I am. I'm, you know, I'm putting it out there for the world. But, you know, when you go through that hell, man, you don't even think you're a human being. You become less than human. That's what they want you to think because that's how they control you. They think that, you know what? If we drive you into that dark hole, you ain't uh -huh. never coming back out. Yeah. And that's the truth of it. And I was, I was in that dark hole. But as far as um, mentally, spiritually, and physically, oh man, physically, they enjoyed being sadistic. Uh, even to this day, on a physical end of it, inside of my legs, I still have scar marks where they would cut me and they would cut me to watch me bleed. And honestly, they would lick the blood because they enjoyed the sadisticness of it. Um, I mean, it was nothing. And then that was just what they did to get off. And when all this was happening, I would have, I don't know. I didn't know what it was like back then, but I would have like an outer body experience. It was like a big tree full of birds. During the, during the experience, you're saying? Yeah, and a gunshot would go off, and all the birds would fly away. Mm. Honestly, I think that was part of my soul flying into the wind just to save myself. It was scattering, so they, couldn't, yeah, yeah. so they couldn't take that part of me. Um, and yeah, I mean, uh, they, they did everything to torture me, you know? whether it be being um, penetrated by a crucifix, you know, anything and everything that you thought, no, you can't even think of it. Oh, yeah, it happened to me. And I lived through it. I survived it. And I didn't know how, but I did, you know. And it was, this was on a weekly basis. Sometimes it was twice a week, you know. Sometimes it was at the house, the parsonage. Sometimes it was literally at the church, you know, but. 
And, at, and later in your life, when you confronted this, you found out that it was occurring in the community. It wasn't just you. Did you think it was just you at the time? No, it was just, you know, everybody thinks that it's only you. But when I came out and said, hey, this happened to me, it, this happened to people from all over different communities in this area, all through the eastern Montana area. You know, evilness knows no boundaries. That's what it comes down to. The devil doesn't go, I'm just going to stay in this five-mile area. No, he goes and hunts wherever he can find prey. And, well, I was part of the prey. Yeah. But here's the thing, too. When people are listening to this or knowing this, oh, man, I'm not that little kid no more. You know, I have survived. I am thriving and I am living. You know, I'm telling this story because I want to give somebody out there hope. And and talk about that a little bit. Um, that's why we've come together and we are kindred spirits um, um, dealing with abuse in the in a religious manner and and overcoming it and forgiving and letting it go and how we how we can thrive in our community and with our families and our friends and, and in our careers with such trauma. But what to jump forward and we'll go back a little bit later, but what did you do about this uh, abuse? Um, just to give the audience a little bit of what you went through from 2000, you said 11 to 2017 or 18. Right. There was a point in my life that um, I was struggling. You know, I admitted I was, I was addicted to alcohol. I was addicted to pornography. You know, I was a chain smoker. I never really got into drugs. Thank God. Cause I know that that would have driven me into the ground. One of the gentlemen, one of the gentlemen, I say that loosely, one of the men that had abused me, I was living and I was homeless and I got this newspaper. I don't know actually how I got this newspaper. I was living in another state uh, and I got this newspaper clipping and on the picture of the front page was the one man that had abused me and they were celebrating his 90th birthday party or something. And they're like, congratulations, what a good man. He's a beautiful human being. He should be a saint. And I thought, if you only freaking knew what he did. And right then and there, something inside me snapped or clicked or hit on the wheel. And I'm like, no, mm -mm. I, I can't let this go anymore. How and, old were you? Oh, God, that was um, 2011. So I was uh, in my 40s. Yeah. Yeah. In my forties. And then, then I did the right thing. I went and reported the abuse. I reported the neglect and, uh, they sent somebody to investigate that. I'm sure that'll be another episode. Mm -hmm. And then I got a letter in the mail and a pat on the head that said, um, we don't believe you. You can go to hell. Goodbye. We'll pray for you. Hit the bricks. And I, I remember getting that letter and I'm like, mm-mm. I'm not giving up on this. You're not dismaying me. You're not putting me out like yesterday's newspaper. And I, I didn't because guess what? The one thing I was seeking was justice. I wanted somebody to know what had happened. And I wanted something to be done because I didn't want some other little kid out there to go through the freaking hell that I went through. Either that or some adult, you know, who was being abused. Nobody should be abused. You do not put your hands or do anything to anybody else. It's wrong. And if you don't say something and you don't do something, 
then you're part of the problem and not the solution. Evil begets and continues when good men do nothing. Guess what? I've learned to become a good man, and I said, no more. I will stand up for this. I'm going to plant my feet in this freaking ground, and I'm not going to budge. What are you going to do? And we skipped over. We went from 12 to 40. Oh, yeah. what, what, what you're talking about right now is an incredible hurdle that you were able to, when you, when you got that response and you said, oh, no, um, you had the strength to go fight it. Um, and that doesn't come from, you know, skipping over from 12 to 40. So as, you know, you overcame so much from the age from 12 to 40 before you're able to make that decision uh, to go fight. And, and you've told me a few fights you had to fight, you know, for ongoing for seven or eight years before um, a, a lawsuit was, was awarded in your direction. Right. So right. let's, let's back up a little bit. Okay. And, and discuss uh, how did, you know, the strength that you were able to come to that decision to say, Oh no, I'm going to fight this. You had won a lot of battles. So let's, let's go back. And, and talk about some of the uh, fights that you had to get into in your teenage years, your 20s and 30s. Um, yeah, I'm, curi I'm curious to know what, how and why it ended at 12. Honestly, I quit going to church. I said, I'm not going anymore. I don't want to go. You can't make me. And that was it. And honestly, uh, my parents had gone through a divorce and my mom, I think she knew something was up and she didn't make me go anymore. She was like, we're kind of done, you know, once again. And don't get me wrong. I had great parents. I mean, they're not perfect. They're like anybody else. I came from a very blue collar background. My father worked on a cattle ranch. She was a farmer. My mother, she worked at the school. She was a dishwasher. She would do whatever she had to, to, you know, put food on the table. And they were wonderful people. For a while there, I didn't have the greatest relationship with my father. But I don't think it, I don't know if maybe any young man or teenage boy does really. You know, I was rebellious. I was whatever. They're going through a divorce. I was kind of going side to side, really. And uh, yeah, I don't blame anybody. It, you know, don't ever think that I'm blaming anybody because I'm not. You know, I, I, if, well, maybe the two guys, but even then. Uh, there was a point in my life where I forgave them, you know, um, in my early younger years. I don't know. I was pretty much like everybody else who grew up in my area. We didn't have anything to do. We grew up in a town with no stoplight. What we did for entertainment was drive to the garbage dump and back, you know, or we'd drive 30 miles to another community to go to the movie theater and eat at Dairy Queen. But should even Dairy Queen was only open seasonal. After Halloween, you're like, oh, wow. damn, no more ice cream. You know, we ain't getting nothing until summer. You know, wow. there was the movie theater, which was great, you know, because we could go there and, you know, go see Rocky, you know, or something like that. That was the joy. And then just driving up and down the street. Well, I come from an era where we didn't have Google or the Internet or any of that junk. You know, you just drove around and waved to people, you know, played your little cassette tapes. You know, that's all we did was burn gas and drive around. You know, and we drank, you know, uh, whether people realize it or not, Eastern Montana, well, in a lot of Montana, we love to drink, you know, because that's part of our culture. I grew up in a community that had two bars. So if there was a football game going on, everybody go to the football game or the basketball game. After that, 
Your parents would go to the bars. The kids would go drive around. Eh, you get a pizza, cruise around, hang out, pick up your parents in a couple hours and drive them home because they're wow. pretty well tanked. Either that or you're getting some adult to go and buy you beer and you just go drive around and drink. We go down to the river. We just cruise the crap, you know, the gravel roads. Shit, we're like a country song. You know, that was us. It's true. We didn't have anything else to do. We had three TV yeah. channels. You know, if the weather blew, you were screwed. Or the president was on, you ain't watching TV. I mean, yeah, when we was, didn't have the technology the, like today. When was the first time you had a drink? Uh, probably when I was like 14. So, yeah. Did, I would. Did it become a weekly staple? It was just during parties, during boredom? What, what did it? Oh, all of the above. Yeah. Okay. We, like I said, we came from a drinking culture. If it was a wedding, you went and got drunk. If it was a party, you went and got drunk. If it was a funeral, yeah. If there are Irish people, you're going to drink for three days. You know, <laughs> it was just, it was part, it was ingrained to us. But remember, I, I grew oh, up with the, the Coors guy, the cowboy, the Marlboro man, you know, smoking cigarettes, Joe, Joe Camel. It was cool to drink. You know, that was part of it. We're cruising around listening to ACDC and Poison, yeah. you know, with Bud Light or something cheap, you know, or if we were really, really hardcore, then we're drinking like vodka, you know, if we were really getting slammed, then we're drinking like whiskey and then we're just blitzed. You know, you're, dri that. you're driving at 13 or 14. You told my 17 year old daughter. Who were, oh yeah. Here. It's Montana. If you can reach the steering wheel and you can, you know, push on the brake or the gas, you're going to be working. And you're going to be driving something. Yeah, that's not uncommon. Yeah. Hell yeah. That's everyday life for us. So you grew up fast. Oh, yeah. had the trauma, um, driving sooner and later, working at early ages on, on the farms and the reservation. You matured very quickly. Yeah. It wasn't so much on the reservation because I really wasn't on the reservation okay. back then. I was in, quote, unquote, uh, a white world. Okay. So I grew up in eastern Montana. It wasn't until later on that I moved to the reservation. So, yeah. Okay. Um, so going from, you know, the, the, the abuse, um, go, having your first drink, when did it, when did, was, were you in darkness? Did you um, disappear into um distractions drinking or what how did you deal with it from age 12 to 20 um just the abuse did you put it did you compartmentalize it did you express it in any way or kind of what what occurred in your teens uh i drank <clears throat> and then the other thing is too i just learned to lock it away someplace in my head you know that's what people do you take this pain and all this ugliness and i put it into this room you know, like a storage shed and just lock it away. And if you don't think about it, then it doesn't exist. See, and that's what I did. You know, I just put it away. And um, when I started drinking, then I loved to drink, you know, having alcohol was a great thing because I'm partying. Once again, it's like a friggin' country song. When you drink, you're a better dancer. You know, you can yeah. sing better. You're a lot more fun. And I would drink till I wanted, I would pass out. Man, there's nothing more euphoric than blacking out drunk because you didn't have to remember anything mm -hmm. and nothing hurt you. You were just in the dark. Mm -hmm. And that's what I did. And then, you know, and then as I got older, well, if you like to drink, the best place to do it is be a bartender. Because guess what? All the people come and hang out there. And, you know, back in the day, back in the day, people smoked in a bar. 
And I loved it because I could be in there at one o'clock in the morning, just cranking up music. Nobody gave a crap. It was a bore. I was going to say, Hey, come turn that down. Nah, two o'clock in the morning. I'm still cranking it up. You know, I'm having a good time. Alcohol was a, back then alcohol was a good thing for me. It was medication for me. Yeah. It's medication for a lot of people, you know, yeah. but now people are like, Ooh, that's not enough. No, I need heroin. I need fentanyl. I need whatever it may be. But guess what? There ain't no answer in the bottom of a beer can or in the bottom of a rock glass when you're doing a line or, I don't know, prescription meds. Mm -hmm. There's no answer in that. All it's doing is numbing you, but you still got to face it again. And that's what I would do. Wake up with a hangover and be like, oh, this sucks. But I'm going to do it again on Friday. You know? Yeah. It became a routine. It's the way did it you, is. Did you tell anybody about the trauma, the abuse in the bars and the teenage years? It was it stuffed away and, and never shared it or? Yeah. No, I put it away. I just packed it away. Okay. You know, because once again, people like me get really good at hiding and um, just walling things up. That was a survival mode. You know, if you package it up and you don't got to look at it, Never happened to you. See, what, what what my trigger was was the day that I saw the guy in the newspaper, and then it went gong. The bulldozer knocked down the wall, and it just started pouring out of me. Yeah, and I'm like, oh freak, you know. And I was just overwhelmed. That's when the trauma kicked in. Literally, mm. up until then, well, no, I mean, uh, alcohol led me to being homeless. Um, I remember I survived living two years in a building with no heat, no electricity, in 40 to 50 below weather. I slept under a pile of blankets on the second floor. You said, you said six blankets. Oh, shit. I, had a, I had a mountain of them. Yeah. It probably looked like a hippo of blankets. you know. But once again, the only heat I had in this room, this whole thing, was some candles. And that was it. I lived off of uh, free bread. Um, I live off of man, kindness and generosity. And once again, I tell this story a lot and there was this lady, I went to this and I don't even know why, but this is when I was kind of finding some sense of religion because the entire, this entire time, ever since it started, you know, I did my battle with God and, uh, it, it, it hurts me right now because you know, I am a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And back then, I never wanted organized religion. And all I did was fight God. And man, I, I hated God. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, too, God never hated me. Mm -hmm. God kept me alive. God loved me when I could not love myself. He sent people to me to just do ordinary things that were extraordinary to me. One time, there was this lady, and I started going to this church, and uh, I, I can't even remember her name. I would thank her today, and she would leave me little Tupperware containers and, you know, it kind of really hit me because right here in the studio where I'm at, somebody had like a little Tupperware container over there where they had food. And I'm looking at it and I'm like, oh, my gosh, that's what she would leave me. 
and she would leave me, you know, leftovers from their meal, whether it be tater tot hot dish or spaghetti. And she'd leave me little notes, little post-it notes. It's going to be all right. You're going to make on. it. This went on for two years. This went on for probably a good year. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'd go there once a week and I, and she'd just leave little notes. If you didn't know, I love you. Wow. When, uh, when you can't love yourself and somebody says that to you, man, you don't know how to react because you're like, I don't know what love is. And I didn't, you know, I was so damaged. I was so screwed up that one of the hardest things for people like me to do is figure out how to love yourself, you know? But those little notes of compassion and love and mercy, that lady saved my life, you know? Total strangers being kind to each other, it makes a difference. It did a lot with of me. A lot of us step over, pass, uh, ignore. When we co- pull up to a stoplight, we so- see somebody on the corner, we don't want to make on- eye contact, right? But there are right. some that are, there are some that are. My, I, my, my daughter... Every, she can't, she breaks down every time she passes someone that's homeless and it, it, it absolutely wrecks her for the day. And it's, I've, I've watched her do that for uh, her whole life. And the empathy um, some of us have is amazing. It sounds like you had that in your life with, with a few individuals, particularly this one. And um, that's, that's I have so many stories of people being kind to me. It's not even funny, but today I take that. And I'm kind to people because how hard is it to be good to people? How is that where hard? you get it from? Is that, why yeah. you, is that why you took care of the missionaries so much and you do potluck dinners every week with, with members of the church and community? Does, does no, that, does I mean, it come from that? One of the reasons that one of the reasons that I take care of the missionaries and I love them is very simple. You know, they give up two years of their life. Think about it. In today's day and age, people won't give you 20 minutes. Think about it. Two years, and they're young people. These are the two good years of their life, too. It's not the end of the, I'm peeing in my pants, eating pudding, hope I'm going to die two years of your life. Think about it. These are the young, virile, we're excited. We're going to go do something. And they're going into a world where they know nobody and nothing. But they're going on faith, literally. And I take care of them and I love them because I believe that's what we're supposed to do. And the other thing is, too, as a church member, a non-member, I don't care if you are a church member, a non-member. If you're listening, you think about this and you put your children out in the world, wouldn't you hope somebody would love them and feed them and clothe them? I sure in the hell hope I would. And so for me, it's every missionary, every parent of a missionary, I believe that's their prayer. You know, dear God, have somebody take care of my children. And you know what? I just, I take it really personal. And I do. That's amazing. But the thing is too, I love these guys. You know, they're a bunch of goofballs. They're a bunch of knuckleheads. But in the end, 
They're my goofballs, my knuckleheads. If you come to my community and my church, I'll love the shit out of you. I'll protect you and I'll feed you. And I'll make sure that you go back to your parents safely. But that's what I'm supposed to do. That's what good men are supposed to do. You look out for your little brothers. And that's what these guys are to me. They're family. So that's why I do it. When you uh, were in the building for a year or two, were you trying to make it in the oil fields there in North Dakota? What, what, how did you end up there? Um, what, what profession were you trying to do? Or did you go there to escape and be home? Like, how, do, how does that all work? No, I ran away. You ran away. I mean, when you go, you want to get away, go to the middle of nowhere. I wasn't trying to build a career. I didn't give a crap if I survived through the night or not. I mean, where do you go to die? The desert, you know, the middle of nowhere. Nobody sees you. Nobody will care about you, and you're just going to fade away. I wasn't going to, you know, do whatever. I was just there, honestly. And once again, I, I lived hand to mouth, you know. Some days I had nothing. Most of the time I had nothing. But out of mercy and grace of other people, I survived, you know. I went to a thrift store, and once again, I still love thrift stores to this day. You know, I went there, and they would give me free clothes, um, blankets, candles. I think most of them probably knew that I was homeless, but they never really said anything because I tried to maintain my, I don't know, level of humanity. So I did the best I could to keep myself clean, um, dressed, you know, I wasn't like stumbling, falling down drunk. When I would go drink, it would be like hidden away. Mm -hmm. You learn to hide yourself away. And sometimes you're hiding in plain sight, you know? And that's what I did. And it was just, I didn't, I was to the point in those days, once again, if I fell asleep and I didn't wake up, so be it then. Were it you, was what it was. Were you scared being lonely in a building, in a dark building with six to 10 blankets on top where, where you fear, where you comfortable, where you in, in what were the emotions? What were, what was it over? Well, I'm sure there were a million emotions and, and many uh, different, but was there an overwhelming like fear, paranoia, um, safeness? Did you feel comfortable being tucked away? Like what, what was it like? No, I wasn't like, it wasn't like the four seasons. I wasn't safe. I wasn't, I wasn't like comfortable but I wasn't being assaulted either. I was in a room by myself and I knew nobody was going to come there and get me, you know, nobody was going to hurt me and nobody was going to save me. I was in that middle ground, kind of like it's not dark and it's not light. I was right there between there. If I went up or down, I didn't care, you know, and I would go do like day labor. I would help some people um, do cleaning, whatever, <laughs> And that's, that's how I existed. You tried to earn a little money that way? Or, yeah. 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 I would get out there and do my hustle. Then I'd go and buy booze. You know, you know, you drink a lot when the people that own the liquor store go, hey, do you want to go? And we're trying this new booze out. What do you think? Well, hell yeah. You know, it's like the drug dealer going, hey, I got some new drugs. They get their favorite drug addict. Tell me how it is. You know, that's how it was for me. And I appreciate it. It was free booze. You know, who doesn't like free alcohol if you're a drinker? So you were yeah. escaping. And yeah. I asked, I asked, and I dig in a little bit about this because in my own addiction, if I could get my fix and go isolate somewhere 
and get away from everybody and have my fix. It was my little haven. It was my little getaway. Um, and it was enjoyable uh, at times. I, it's, that sounds weird. How can you be in a dark place and, and isolated by yourself, being high, um, and enjoy it? Well, like you said, you're escaping the pain. You're not getting abused. You've got, you can control, you think you're in control. You think right. you're in a safe place and you're, you're in this little cocoon and you've devastated your life. You've devastated lives of your loved ones and, and, but you're safe and right. you have, and you have your fix and you're able to control your anxiety and your depression and your, and your fear. So that's kind of why I asked that is, um, it, you, you brought up, uh, memories of myself isolating and being in dark places, but having my, uh, being able to think I can control myself with my addiction. Yeah. I was just floating through life. You know, I didn't care up, down, North, East, West. I didn't care. You know, how, it, how old were you when, uh, in this building with the blankets and homeless and uh, probably my mid twenties. Yeah. Mid twenties. Yeah. Formative years. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, cause you, once again, Oh, I'm going, go on. Oh, do you think that the apathy towards, uh, you know, you not caring where you went was another safeguard, another protection. Because if you were vulnerable in caring, that might get, you might get hurt. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Back then, I didn't care. I mean, once again, if you don't know how to love yourself, you don't give a crap about anybody else. If they're miserable, so be it. They deserve it. That's how I thought. I had no love for anybody or anything, you know. But once again, it's a lot of work to be angry. It's a lot of work mm -hmm. to be hateful. Whether you know it or not, it takes a lot of energy to produce that feeling. Yes. And after a while, it'll just suck the life out of you. Why do you think people are angry and the hateful people look exhausted all the time? Look at them. Because it's a lot. It yeah. taxes their soul. And I got to the point where I'm like, this is killing me. So was the alcohol. And that's when I was like, I'm, I'm done drinking, you know? And I'd gone through a lot before then because during this period too, um, I'll tell you the story about like my kind of what pushed me to the edge of um, going over the edge, falling in the ravine. So basically in like a 45-day time frame, um, my dad died. Um, I was driving him back. I'd gone to Montana, and I was bringing him back from his dialysis appointment. We had just finished eating. My dog had, my dad had little dogs. He had little red wiener dogs that he loved, you know. And so my dad always ate chicken strips, and he'd always take a chicken strip home, wrap it in a freaking napkin, put it in his pocket so he could give it to his dogs. So I'm driving, and I'm, you know, talking to my dad in his car, and we're driving, and. He just looks at me and he just falls forward right onto the console in the car. And uh, he had a massive stroke and that was it. So I pulled over on the interstate, you know, and called and, you know, the whole 911, you know, and they took him in. Um, my sister came in, my brother came in and, you know, I had two brothers. My other brother lived out of the country. <laughs> uh, my mom. And my parents were divorced. My father was remarried. And so anyway, we went there and 
you know, I talk, I can talk about this now. Years ago, I couldn't because it just, it still killed me. You know, once again, I get it that our parents aren't going to outlive us, but I just wasn't equipped to be burying my parents at the age of, you know, 30, you know? And so I went in there and I don't know, I was kind of, I was the guy and when they told us that he was just wasn't it anymore and he wasn't going to make it, I literally was the guy that went and flipped the button off on the ventilator, you know? And I asked him, I said, was he in any pain? And they're like, no, they're like, he just had a massive stroke and it was just literally like the whole room went dark. And, you know, so if there's a, if there is a saving grace, you, you know that God took him quickly, and that was a good thing. He was not suffering. He was not in pain. And the other thing, too, my father hated dialysis. And once again, people who were on dialysis, you get it, you know. My dad hated the thought that a machine had to keep him alive, mm-hmm. you know, because he had worked with machinery his whole entire life, and I was flipping the script. Um, so that was really tough. And then... After that, um, my sister died. So she, her heart just gave up. She was just out jogging. She was in her 20s and uh, she's dead right alongside the road. Just she was young, she, younger than you by a few years? or Yeah. So she was probably six years younger. Wow. So she was like 24. So basically within like 45 days, I lost um, my mom, my dad, and my sister. You don't know how jacked up your life is when this happens to you. So my my mom was living in an assisted living home, a nursing home. And uh, anyway, we did the funeral for my sister. Um, it, was, it was an incredible toll on my family. And then I went back to where I was living. And uh, I just was hiding out, you know. That's when you really get into the drinking because you got a lot to bury. Yeah. And I just, I couldn't function. I was still functioning. And once again, uh, I tell you, God got me here. I will always say that because I don't know how I made it, you know. And then my sister called me. uh, And it was, I tell you this too, I never liked the holidays. Halloween is one of my favorite holidays, and it's really come back for me. But, um, I mean, between the month of October, mid-October, my sister called me on the Tuesday before Thanksgiving, and she said, Mom's not doing good. Um, You need to come back. Honestly, I didn't know if I could. I mean... I didn't know if I could do one more funeral. Yeah. I mean, how much can you do in a freaking three-week period, you know? So I came back, and I'm like, okay, here we are. I go up to the hospital, and uh, once again, there was my mom. It's November. Um, 
Wednesday before Thanksgiving, you know, people are getting to the spirit and everything else. I roll into town, uh, go up to the hospital room, and there she is. And she just was, uh, the diagnosis was she was dying of a broken heart, <laughs> literally, you know, and it's kind of, anyway, so, um, three weeks after your father passed, correct? Yeah. And so I go in there and my mother and I were exceptionally close, you know, she just was uh, amazing, really, you know, um, they don't make women like her, you know, if you have your mother still appreciate the shit out of her, yeah, love her, take care of her, spend time with her because there's going to be a time that you're going to wish you did that, you know, call your mom literally. So I went there and, uh, our thing was Thanksgiving. So my mom, when I was a kid, she'd get up and I don't think, I don't think mothers sleep during the holiday season because mm -hmm. they're always working. They're doing something for their family because we don't, that's true. We don't. Why? Because you love your family. Your children are everything to you, literally, you know? And for me, my mom and our, our, our time was as hokey as it seems, we would watch the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade together. <laughs> that was kind of our thing. And so I was like, and I sat with my mom. The whole night. And the people at the hospital. Simply amazing. You know, another thing. Healthcare workers. You don't get the credit you deserve. Yeah, thank you for pointing that out. Absolutely. I don't care if you're a doctor. I don't care if you're a nurse. If you're the person cleaning, I'll say thank you to you every day. You know, the people who drive the ambulance, the people who do reception, amazing. You know, especially after what we went through in the pandemic. Mm -hmm. yeah. My hat off to you. I absolutely love Hugh, you know? So I sat there and uh, the nurses came in and they were just outstandingly good. Um, the one nurse, she goes, you can talk to her. She can hear you. And I was like, really? And she's like, yeah, she, she can hear you. She was so amazing. She goes, Tell her everything you want. You know, this is your time. So I did. I just started talking. Honestly, I don't know if I was just babbling, you know, and uh, I was telling stories. Oh, do you remember this? Do you remember that? You know, everything, you know. And then it was, it was so weird but it was so cool and it's montana you know november 
in Montana, the weather's going to whoop the shit out of you. Yeah. It's a hard climate, you know. If you live in eastern Montana, you crazy as hell. You know, it's 50, 60 below, and it's treacherous. You've got to be tough to live there. And the people are tough to live there. But they are some strong people. So anyway, I looked out the window, and uh, Thanksgiving morning, the sun was coming up. You know, Montana's the, the big sky country. The sky is bigger. It's bluer in Montana. It's just, it's tremendous. No place else like Montana. You know, I love Montana. I really do. And uh, I, I looked out the window and it was just clear and blue. And the Macy's Thanksgiving parade came on. And I'm still sitting there with my mom. And I'd been with my mom the entire night. And my sister and my brother had gone over to their house. They weren't there the evening. So it was just me and my mom. And uh, we watched the parade. And I'm telling her, oh, look, here comes whoever, you know, and this float is whatever. And, you know, the floats are cool. The music, it's just I'm giving her play-by-play -play action. And uh, I'm like, oh, look, here comes Santa Claus. Um, the parade is over and Christmas has become or you know Christmas has come uh -huh. uh, I can remember uh, she squeezed my hand uh and then she died. You were with her? Yeah. You were with her? Yeah. I didn't know that. And so that was... That was another funeral we had to go to. And you still had to try and cope. And, you know, it's Thanksgiving morning. We all know what that's like. You know, it's a good morning. People are getting ready and... Uh, some days it's not a good morning, but don't get me wrong. <clears throat> I'm not trying to keep this sad and depressed. I'm just telling you the truth. Today, I love Thanksgiving. I took it from tragedy to something wonderful. To triumph. Absolutely. You know, I love the holidays because... My mom would have loved the holidays. So on Thanksgiving, as part of the church, you know, we feed people who don't have a place to go. And we make turkey and potatoes and we do everything, you know. We show love and mercy and compassion. Um, it, amazes, yeah, it amazes me how moms are never in the pictures of Thanksgiving and holidays, right? They're in right. the backgrounds doing everything and supporting and making sure that the the festivities and the plans and the foods and the games are, are occurring. Right. They work tirelessly. I mean, they work their fingers to the freaking bone, you know. But once again, whatever, you know, that part of my life that happened, was it unbearable? Yeah, it was. But I'm not that person anymore. I celebrate the holidays. I love the holidays. I love, I love being in service to people. I'm the guy that goes to the grocery store and first thing I ask the lady checking me out, how was you? How are you doing? How's your day doing? And they're like looking at me strange and they're like, 
we're good. And they're like, how are you? I'm good. Should I'll talk to anybody, you know, but it's not hard to be nice to people. It's not hard to have compassion for somebody you don't know because you do not know what they're going through. I'm living proof of that. Yeah. So, so this, what year was, was this about uh, that, that this 45 day period of this came before I spoke out about what was going on in my life with the addiction or with the abuse. And the reason probably too, was that in my little mind, my little eight year old mind back there, when they told me that if I ever said anything, they would kill my parents. Uh, well, guess what? Geez. My parents are dead already. <laughs> what the hell are you going to do to me? You know, you, you know, God took them from me, you know, or now well, they're, the threat was gone, you know, and be very careful when you threaten people and then you take their threat away and there's nothing there to hold against them. It's a game on for me. It became game on. I went from being hunted to, I'm going to go hunt you yeah. and you're not going to like it. So that's what I did. It's, it's absolutely. So, um, I, I, Clarissa, Clarissa and I have only maybe conversed what four or five times. <laughs> um, we've met two or three times in person and Nash and I, this is our first time meeting, uh, this weekend. I've, I've watched his, uh, just last, uh, three to four years unfold of Nash's life. So it, it's gonna, I, I love that we've come together us three. We're right. able to talk about things, tragedy, health, and, and, uh, there's so many commonalities, um, that I, I think we all share. And when we, when we go through our histories, you know, just, just your experience with uh, having your mother pass and then the, the freedom it almost gave you to go out and make things right for the purpose of bringing uh, your family heritage. And it, 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 I experienced that with my mother when, when, um, when she passed. I was like, okay, game on. I'm going to finish her story. I'm going to live for her. I'm going to sacrifice for her and I'm going to be the best person I want to be. And that's going to help me fight. So we have these incredible women in our life Absolutely. That, 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 that were pioneers and we are carrying on their legacy. And that helped you overcome and get ready to do the battle that you had to do. You had to get out of addiction. You had to right. get, you had to get out, get out of homelessness. You had to confront the demons of abuse and tragedy um, and it sounds like there's some parallels of, of, you know, losing your mother, but wanting and your father and your sister and, and becoming uh, kind of a fighting warrior to carry on the legacy. Um, and that gave you strength, which is almost the reverse of what you would think would happen. Here you are in absolute tragedy, but it gave you the strength to stand up um, and you felt freedom to go fight. And that was a barrier maybe in your mind mentally uh, that you didn't want your, to lose your parents because of uh, religious authority telling you they're going to take that life. It, it's just, it's, it's so confusing. Oh God. Absolutely. It's so, uh, I don't know. I, I don't know if the listeners can appreciate um, it's, it's almost two sides. There's a paradox in, in uh, the freedom it gave you to fight, but also, I would assume you living on and uh, I don't know, carrying on their legacy helped you overcome homelessness, um, alcoholism, um, and, and the abuse. Is that correct? Am I assuming? Am I? No, you're fine. 
And there's a point in life where you decide really quick, you're going to live or you're going to die. You know, my father would tell me, you know, in the world of nature, the strong survive and the weak die. That's, that's natural se selection. It's the order. <laughs> then yeah. he would look at me and go, which one are you, weak or strong? And there was a point where that's all I was was weak. But then there was a point where I was like, okay, oof, I'm not that anymore. Because, you know, like that little saying that's, you never know how strong you can be until that's all you got. Mm -hmm. Shit, if that's your only option, take it, you know, because it's better than what you're going through. And these yeah. moments, you know, once again, I paint for a living. You know, I, I'm kind of a nut, but that's all right. I, I reached into my soul and dug stuff out. And I have a painting called Gunshots in My Head because it's true because sometimes there were gunshots firing in my head. And I may seem perfectly good on the outside, but the inside was a mess. Yeah. It was a storm. And that's, but I don't think that's just limited to me. And once again, this is why we're here because we want people to go, wow, somebody finally gets it. I get you. Believe me. I might be the guy behind you in the grocery store buying a bag of Cheetos and a Diet Coke, but I feel you, and I want you to be better. I don't want you to be like that because it's a horrible way to live. It's a horrible way to be. You know, get the help that you need. That's why we're doing this, so we can tell our stories, and hopefully people enjoy it. We make people laugh, goofiness, because I'm, I'm your everyday guy. You know, like I said, Dollar store, grocery store, I don't care, you know, I'm just me. I've gone through some stuff, but here I am. I'm alive. I'm thriving. And anybody can be as well. And this might be a good segue to maybe come to a conclusion on this first episode, um, and then we can get into the second one and continue on with Nash's story. But thank you for sharing. Um, You're welcome. About the abuse, the alcoholism, the loss, the triumph. Um, your empathy, your uh, how you look out for human beings, and um, always, you know, I've been with you for two days now, and you asking, you get engaged with everybody that's around mm -hmm. you, and you want to know about them. It's an it's an it's an incredible feat, and uh, you know, I, I assume the tragedy and and being homelessness and seeing love given to you, and you might you might just be that person right out of the gate when you know coming coming in uh, onto the earth, and you might have already had all that. I don't know, but it's it's been fascinating to watch how you engage with people and love people. Um, so I well, you know, and the other thing is too, I'm not perfect either. There are some people that I want to karate chop in the throat because they annoy the crap out of me. <laughs> That's the truth of it. You know, I'm I'm not 100. percent Ooh, I'm walking on water. No, yeah. there's that person. You cut me off in traffic. Uh, you're gonna get it. You know. <laughs> yeah. I always tell my girls not everybody likes peaches. Ooh, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> see. But yeah, so there you go. Okay, well, episode two, we'll get into uh, more of Nash's story. I can't wait to get to the art. You'll be blown away at um, how his paintings come to yeah. life, where they come from, the uh, spiritualism. I, there's, I love his background, uh, both being Native American, having Mexican background, and being raised in a white culture, right? And yeah. so he, you, you've, you've got these amazing paradigms and and, and and how that makes it into your art um, is, is, is fascinating. So thank you, everybody, for thank listening. You. Before I end, Clarissa, did you want to say anything or Nash before we 
great, Nash. It was a pleasure. Thank you. I'm looking forward to more. <laughs> yeah. You know, and whoever's listening, I'm praying for you. You know, don't give up. Keep going. It'll get better. Believe me, it will. Great. So we'll continue to explore, you know, our introductions and getting to know each other. Just again, we this is three people that have come together for the purpose of health conditions, mental health, addiction. Um, we're going to be talking about other conditions, not just mental health and not just tragedy and abuse, right. but, but other people's stories of MS and diabetes and yeah. depression and other stuff. So we look forward to continue doing this. We hope that uh, you'll keep listening and um, hope the hope that we uh, connected with you guys. So thank you for listening. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Mm -hmm.